and welcome to our Laughter and Tears podcast here at The Voice of the Arts with your host, yours truly, Joe Weber. One of my late father's favorite books was called One-Upsmanship, and it was written by an Englishman named Stephen Potter. It was a how-to book in the game of establishing yourself higher than the next fellow in the various social pecking orders that we find ourselves in. This classic comedy routine called Four Yorkshiremen included some of the cast members of Monty Python. It also included Marty Feldman, among others. Who would have thought 30 years ago We'd all be sitting here drinking Chateau de Chasselet, eh? Uh, <laughs> them days, we're glad to have the price of a cup of tea. All right, a cup of cold tea. Huh? Without milk or sugar. Or tea. In a cracked cup and all. <laughs> oh, we never used to have a cup. We used to have to drink out of a roll-up newspaper. <laughs> the best we could manage was to suck on a piece of damp cloth. But, but you know, we were happy in those days, although we were poor. Because we were poor. Uh, My old dad used to say to me, Money doesn't bring you happiness, son. He was right. I was happier then, and I had nothing. We used to live in this tiny old tumble-down house with great big holes in the roof. (laughs) House? You were lucky to live in a house. We used to live in one room, all 26 of us, no furniture, half the floor was missing. We were all huddled together in one corner for fear of falling. (laughs) You were lucky to have a room. We used to have to live in the corridor. Oh, we used to dream of living in a corridor. Would have been a palace to us. We used to live in an old water tank on a rubbish tip. We got woke up every morning by having a load of rotting fish dumped all over us. House? Oh. Well, when I say house, it was just a hole in the ground covered by a sheet of tarpaulin. But it was a house to us. We were evicted from our hole in the ground. We had to go and live in a lake. You were lucky to have a lake. There were 150 of us living in a shoebox in the middle of the road. Cardboard box? Aye. You were lucky. We lived for three months in a rolled-up newspaper in a septic tank. You used to have to get up every morning at 6 o'clock and clean the newspaper, go to work down the mill, 14 hours a day, week in, week out, for six months a week, and when we got home, our dad would thrash us to sleep with his belt. Luxury. We used to have to get out of the lake at three o'clock in the morning, clean the lake, eat a handful of hot gravel, work 20 hours a day at mill for twopence a month, come home and Dad would beat us around the head and neck with a broken bottle if we were lucky. (laughs) Well, of course, we had it tough. We used to have to get them out of the shoebox in the middle of the night and lick the road clean with our tongues. We had to eat half a handful of freezing cold gravel, work 24 hours of that mill for four months every six years, and when we got home, our dad would slice us in two with a bread knife. Right. I had to get up in the morning at 10 o'clock at night, half an hour before I went to bed, eat a lump of cold poison, work 29 hours a day down mill and pay mill on it for permission to come to work, and when we got home, our dad would kill us and dance about in our grave, singing hallelujah. Are you try and tell the young people of today that? And they won't believe you. No, no, they won't. In Praise of the Human Body, written by Jack Handy in his collection, What I Would Say to the Martians and Other Veiled Threats. 
When you think of the most amazing machine in the world, what do you think of? James Bond's car, right? But recently, I had a thought that may surprise you and even startle you. The most amazing machine in the world is the human body. That's right, the human body. But how, you say, can the human body be a machine? It doesn't have a central pump or rotating joints or interlocking teeth. But think again, doesn't it? Not only is the human body the greatest machine, but the greatest oil for a machine is any oil that goes on the human body. I'm not sure about sex oils, but oil of Olay, Pond's cold cream, oils such as these are the most beautiful of oils. The most magnificent warranty on a machine would be some type of warranty on a human body, which I guess would be a life insurance policy, something like that. The greatest hood ornament for a machine is one of those mirror things a doctor wears on his head. For me, the greatest work of art in the world is also the human body. I'm not talking about an old body or an ugly one. I'm in a really hot, sexy body. Man, to me, that's great art. And the greatest way to view the art is by hiding in the bushes and hoping the art doesn't see you. The greatest temple in the world is, let's face it, the Parthenon. But if the Parthenon gets any more corroded, I think I'm going to have to say the human body. What's the most perfect musical instrument? I would argue it's the human body, except for the tuba sounds. The greatest thing that can be sewn together from different parts and then brought back to life with electricity is the human body. The most precious gift one human can give another, I believe, is the gift of a third human, such as a prostitute or stripper for a birthday or something. The fiercest battleground in the world is the human body, but the battle is fought on a microscopic level, which makes it the most boring battleground. The best friend you can have is the human body, unless it's dead and it's chasing you. The greatest envy of the chimpanzee is the human body, especially the roller skating human body. The greatest cannibal meal in the world is, surprisingly, strawberry shortcake. The greatest evidence of a murder is the human body. The greatest monument to human stupidity is the Washington Monument, if it ever falls over because it wasn't built very good. The greatest medicine in the world is human laughter, and the worst medicine is zombie laughter. The greatest mystery in the world is the human heart, but only while it's in the human body. Otherwise, where's the mystery? The most amazing computer ever made is the human brain, and the best way to shut down the human brain is to have it listen to my so-called friend, Don. The greatest camera is the human eye, but a worse camera is the drunk human eye, and a really bad camera is the drunk eye that has been punched by the human fist. I'm not sure what the greatest weapon in the world is, but one of the worst weapons is one of those bowls and bars that holds peanuts, because when you throw it at a guy, it just makes him madder. In general, though, I would say the human body or its parts or the things that come out of it are the best in their categories. And even after it dies, the human body has one more trick up its sleeve. It turns into the scariest skeleton in the world. Don says the only reason I come up with ideas about the human body is to sound smart at parties. But I don't just toss off ideas haphazardly like you would toss a horseshoe over your shoulder. I study an idea, then I chew on it for a while, then I spit it out. So, Don, don't think I'm just trying to sound smart because I'm not. You've been listening to In Praise of the Human Body, written by Jack Handy in his collection What I Would Say to the Martians and Other Veiled Threats. A good laugh is a great thing, but a good cry is even better. It unties knots in our body and our soul, and sometimes it's hard to access that sadness that causes tears. 
There are times in life when we don't know why we're feeling the way that we do, when nothing brings us pleasure and little problems seem impossible to solve. Those are times that if we're lucky, we can access inner sadness and have a good cry. Something that works for me is absolute, unbridled sentimentality. Let's give a listen to George Jones. He stopped loving her today. He said, I'll love you till I die. She told him you'll forget in time. As the years went slowly by She still prayed upon his mind He kept her picture on his wall Went half crazy now and then But he still loved her through it all Hoping she'd come back again Kept some letters by his bed It in 1962 He had underlined in red Every single I love I went to see him just today Oh, but I didn't see no tears All dressed up to go away First time I'd seen him smile in years He stopped loving her Today, a place to reap upon his door, and soon they'll carry him away. He stopped loving her today. You know, she came to see him one last time. Oh, and we all wondered if she would. And it kept running through my mind. This time, he's over her for good. He stopped loving her today. It Stop loving her today. Autumn 2023 will be the 10th anniversary of the death of my wife, Felicia, after almost 42 years of marriage. She had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease, and during that time I had sought companionship with other women 
and perhaps that is why I have had trouble coming to terms with her loss. Maybe some of the pioneers of country music can open up those floodgates of unexpressed tears. Away the cold. Oh, 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 oh,
No warm lights flickered around him, no blankets there to fold. Nothing but the howling wind and the driving rain so cold. When he heard a whistle blowing in a dreamy kind of way, the hobo seemed contented for he smiled there where he lay. Hobo Bill Outside the rain was falling On that lonely boxcar door But the little form of Hobo Bill Lay still upon the floor While the train sped through the darkness And the raging storm outside no one knew that Hobo Bill was taking his last ride. It was early in the morning when they raised the hobo's head. The smile still lingered on his face. But Hobo Bill was dead There was no mother's longing To soothe his weary soul For he was just a railroad bum Who died out in the cold Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman with Hobo Bill's Last Ride, and before that we heard the Carter family with Faded Coat of Blue, which had to have been a song from the Civil War. When A.P. Carter found this song, I believe he switched the words famished to Spanish, which caused confusion so that his predominantly Southern audience wouldn't realize it was a song mourning a Union soldier. In today's cancel culture, not only is this younger generation told what to think, but even more dangerously, what to feel, which puts people at odds with their own sentiments. Perhaps this is why as a nation we seem so hopelessly divided and unable to solve serious problems. Up next, we're going to hear author Ian Frazier reading an excerpt from his semi-autobiographical work called Family, in which he describes the death of Confederate General Stonewall Jackson, a hero to many Southerners of all ideological stripes, and a villain to those who see the only exceptional aspect of United States history, the fact that we allowed slavery. Uh, the section I'm going to read now is from my long work, Family, uh, and it's a section about the death of Stonewall Jackson. Stonewall Jackson was wounded at the Battle of Chancellorsville, uh, lay in uh, illness for uh, some time after that, a week or so, uh, contracted a fever and uh, died. And uh, this is a section about his... Uh, last hours, or his, his last days. Mary Anna Jackson, that's his wife, was staying in Richmond at the house of the Reverend Dr. Moses Drury Hogue when word came that her husband had been wounded. 
Reverend Hogue was the Presbyterian orator Jackson had once made a special trip to Richmond to hear. His wife and other Richmond ladies had since befriended Anna. Due to the danger of capture, she did not go to Jackson for five days until after the railroad had been repaired. He had been moved in the meantime to a house on the Chandler Farm at Guinea Station, a stop on the railroad south of Fredericksburg. Again, Anna brought Hetty, her maid, and the baby, Stonewall's daughter. After the surgery, Jackson at first recovered well, resting comfortably and discussing theology and military strategy with his aides. But by the time Anna arrived, his condition had worsened. She had last seen her husband just over a week before. Now she saw him semi-conscious, semi-conscious one arm gone, his remaining hand bandaged, his cheeks flushed with fever, his breathing labored, his face scratched, and the scratches dressed with Isinglass plaster. He revived, recognized her, and said, You must not wear a long face. I love cheerfulness and brightness in a sick room. The doctors, several had been sent to assist Dr. McGuire, told Anna that Jackson had developed pneumonia of the right lung. They blistered him with vacuum cups and gave him morphine and opium. He was in and out of consciousness from the time she arrived. He said things like, Tell Major Hawks to send forward provisions to the men. Order A.P. Hill to prepare for action. Pass the infantry to the front. Anna spent so much time with him that her baby got hungry. One evening, Anna read him psalms and sang hymns. On Sunday, May 10th, the doctors told Anna that Jackson would die in a few hours. She sat by his bedside and held his hand and told him that he would that day be with his maker in heaven. He regained consciousness and asked her what she was saying, and when she told him, he replied, Oh, no, you are frightened, my child. Death is not so near. I may yet get well. Anna flung herself across the bed, weeping. Then he asked Dr. McGuire if what his wife had said was true, and the doctor affirmed it. Jackson said that was all right, later adding, I have always desired to die on a Sunday. Anna set Julia, the baby, on the bed next to him. He saw his daughter and said, Little darling, sweet one. The baby smiled at him as long as he continued to notice her. At about three in the afternoon, he became restless. He called out orders and murmured disconnected words. Just before he died, he seemed to relax. He smiled as if in relief. He said, Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. A short talk given by historians at the Chancellorsville battlefield usually concludes near the visitor center at the spot where Jackson was wounded. I stood with a small group of visitors and listened to historian James McKee describe Jackson's wounding and death. Next to me, a boy in a black T-shirt and drawstring camouflage pants sighted the pistol of his forefinger at joggers and bicyclists on a nearby road as James McKee repeated Jackson's last words. And I began to cry silently and blink the tears so they wouldn't overflow, as I almost always do when I think of those words, as I have done sometimes late in the evening when repeating them to dinner party companions. Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. In this sentence, perhaps the most famous dying utterance in American history, 
Jackson concentrated a lifetime of prayer and struggle and aspiration, his and that of the young country he had fought to divide. So many crossed water to get here, so many wanted to rest under the shade. The trees of Jackson's vision are the ones we could have cut down but decided not to. His river pertains to the Shenandoah of his early triumphs and the dangerous Potomac and the moat-like Rappahannock and the strategic Chickahominy. But it is the same spiritual water as the River Jordan and the River of Life and the river we shall gather at in the hymn. It is what the historical marker on Jackson Trail at the Chancellorsville Battlefield has in mind when it mentions the soldiers never crossing another earthly stream. In his last words, Jackson created America's best-known imaginary landscape. Let us cross over the river and rest under the shade of the trees. In the staccato rhythm of the words, I can see each step of the action. The sentence ascends in terraces to rest in peace. It undoes knots inside me. It exhales like a sigh. I can see the shining, whorled river sl sliding by and the gently rising bank and the shaded grass trodden down after a day camp picnic across the river and under the trees. I see the columnar trunks almost in a row and the high ceiling where the leaves begin and the sketchier clouds and sky somewhere above, and then I get kind of carried away and I extend this landscape indefinitely in every direction and I imagine it as the new good place America in its best moments has hoped to be. And I populate it from the whole globe and I fill it with faces like those in a poster from an old epic Western movie and with cooking smells and music and maybe even a few car burglar alarms for verisimilitude. I will spare you all the details. Suffice it to say that all the drinking fountains work across the river and under the trees. Before the Civil War, America didn't know if it was a country or lots of different promised lands. People invented the America they wanted to live in and then struggled to live there. Across the river and under the trees combined all these invented countries into one. Across the river and under the trees descended like a beneficence in the last moments of a fierce man's life and crystallized his fierceness to purity. Across the river and under the trees carried no demurring subclauses or riders. It included us all, people Jackson considered infidels, men he would have shot unblinking in life. Across the river and under the trees was poetry, to equal the nation-making poetry of Lincoln and the only line of public poetry to come from the South in the war. Even though Stonewall Jackson fought for the slave power, and though his faith is beyond me, and though he did not like newspaper correspondence, and though he killed the boy whose family had the shoe store, and though the flag of his cause still scares me when I see it on the radiator grill of a truck in my rearview mirror, and though I am more than glad that his side lost, I dream of across the river and under the trees.
Famous American baritone Lawrence Tibbet singing Going Home. He was born in 1896, died in 1960, had a long career with the Met, a long and very successful career. His father was killed in a shootout with an outlaw named Jim McKinney in 1903. His dad was a part-time deputy sheriff. That's going to close out this podcast. Joe Weber saying so long and thank you for listening from here at the Voice of the Arts. Thank you.